This song, Joseph and I, I want to share with you right now. Just make this your prayer today. It's a really short, simple song. Sing with us if, if you know this. Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer Bless you. Thank you, folks. God bless. Welcome to Sovereign Grace, everybody. I know it got cold last night. Uh, this is, I guess, one of the first really cold snaps we've had this year. So uh, be praying that the Lord will keep your family warm and keep your home warm. Uh, but we're warm here in the God's house. We have several people traveling this weekend. Uh, we've got some other folks who are out and about as well. Uh, but be praying for them. Amen. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, let's remember that uh, Matthew chapter 20, this, this chapter of Matthew's gospel, it, it, the overall theme of this chapter, again, is reinforcing the teaching from Jesus about the kingdom of heaven. And it really goes back to the, the response uh, to Peter's naive pride from his question in chapter 19, verse 27. Remember when, when Peter asked the question of Jesus, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? That kind of set the stage for everything from chapter 19 into chapter 20. So the spirit of this question is still at play here. Jesus is really still answering that question. But but this is the point in the chapter. Remember, we, we looked at the parable of the, of the laborers in the vineyard at the beginning of the chapter and, and the lesson of, of pride and gratitude out of that. And actually God's grace through all of that as well. Um, and then last week we... We were focused on uh, the brothers, uh, the sons of Zebedee, the brothers James and John, and their mother who petitions Jesus for a very specific request. Uh, Lord, promise us that we'll sit at the choicest thrones beside your throne in your glory. Pretty bold question, if you remember last week we looked at that. Uh, but Jesus here, he, he's reinforcing this teaching here in chapter 20 uh, of the necessity of humility in the kingdom of heaven. But more specifically, he's focusing here on this end of this chapter with his 12. We've got to remember that Jesus at this point in the gospel is on his way to Jerusalem. He has turned his face to Jerusalem and he is still preparing his 12 disciples to be leaders in the kingdom. He's still not done with them. They still need some polishing. They still need a little bit of shaping. And we see the sin of pride coming out in them even here. And so 
we got to remember here that as Jesus reinforces this lesson, God's sovereignty is at work here. And he's always going to remind us that he is always fair and he is always just. And our ideas of status matters nothing. And so if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. And I want to go back and begin our reading in, in verse 20 like we did last week. I, w- I still want to keep verses 20 through 28 in context, but we're going to focus more on verses 24 through 28. Let's read together. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am, a, I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. Verse 23. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hmm. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this reminder from the words of your son, Jesus, that to be great in your kingdom is really to be humble in man's eyes. But more so, it's genuine humility in your eyes. You know our hearts. And far too often, Lord, as we are serving your kingdom, as we are on this journey with your son, Jesus Christ, in this life, in the good service to the kingdom, pride can still come up. And so, God, I pray this morning you would continue to reveal to us where pride is directing our thoughts because it's the root of all other sin. Even good intentions in service to the kingdom can be tainted with the sin of pride. And so, God, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning and speak to us. Love us, Father, and show us your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Let's remember here in this chapter that Matthew is taking us into the scene of really two major uh, scenes here to reinforce Jesus' teaching about ambition and pride, arrogance. Um, I mean, right after the parable of the laborers of the vineyard, this literally... As Jesus is walking to Jerusalem in verses 17 through 19, if you remember, he reminds them for the third time of what must happen to him once he arrives in Jerusalem. And if you remember last week, it was in that scene, as literally you can imagine walking along the road here, it's kind of what we see here as he's on his journey to Jerusalem and he's reminding his 12 of, of, of the mockery and the, the suffering and the crucifixion that will await him in that moment comes this question of pride. 
Now, in Matthew's gospel, just a summary, is the mother is listed here as the one who petitions Jesus. But in Mark's account, Mark chapter 10, Mark lifts, lays the blame directly upon the two sons. And now, as we, we see the scene as it continues here, as Jesus reminds them of, of spiritual pride, we, he's reminding them that pride is, is at the heart of all sinful attitude. And even citizens of the kingdom of heaven are not immune from this sin of pride. That's what we're seeing here. And so there's a warning from Jesus, not only in the parable that he gave uh, just prior to this, at the first part of this chapter of the laborers in the vineyard, but even more so now in this direct interaction between Jesus and his 12 disciples. I mean, remember, here's how C.S. Lewis described pride as the great sin. I want to start here. We read it last week. It's going to be the foundation even more so today. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes the great sin. This was in Mere Christianity. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. I mean, the way C.S. Lewis describes this great sin is so on target, isn't it? The more pride we have in ourselves, the more we hate it in others. It's the root of all sin. I mean, we see here in the great sin that, that the sons of Zebedee this, and their mother, and now in verse 24 through 28, the other ten of the twelve, they are, though term, indignant. How dare these two sons be so prideful and so bold as to request this of our Lord? Let's take a look here at what we're saying here. I mean, and when we close this scene here, we got to think, you remember, genuine humility is at the heart of genuine conversion of a Christian. Would you agree? And, and what we're seeing here is that even though these disciples, you, you could argue that they are genuine followers of Christ, barring Judas here. But they're wrestling with the sin of pride, even as they are serving Jesus himself. Only in this True humility, can we understand and appreciate the sacrifice of our Savior? Only then can we all come around His table in heaven and, and the thrones of heaven and before Him and worship Him. As we worship now, we are preparing ourselves to worship eternally in heaven. Yet Matthew's gospel repeatedly shows us the struggle here of these twelve. The struggle of pride and humility within this knit group. As we close this scene here between G the sons of Zebedee and, and the twelve other ten disciples, I mean, there's the typical response among prideful men is shown here when the other ten disciples, in verse 24, how they react to the pride of James and John's request. Look here in verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Indignant. I mean, that's a pretty bold word. Not just frustrated, I mean, they were indignant. I mean, now we see a second example of pride. 
pride and jealousy are bedfellows here. You're noticing this. Parents, do you have to deal with jealousy in your home amongst the siblings? It's part of the human condition. It begins in infancy. And we're seeing jealousy here amongst the other ten who were indignant toward James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But at the root of their jealousy is pride. Pride and jealousy are bedfellows. They go together. I mean, the indignation is not righteous anger here. Got to make sure we understand these 10 in verse 24, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. There is no hint of self-righteous anger here. It is selfish jealousy. I mean, it's clearly because of jealousy and, and the evidence of trying to jockey for position in the kingdom of heaven that plagued these 12 men often. Imagine you are chosen by Jesus Christ himself, only 12 Can you imagine the sin of pride creeping up everywhere they went? Every time that Jesus taught great things, every time Jesus had these great miracles, look, we're with Jesus. We're his select. We are the 12. And then even amongst the 12, remember, Jesus had an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were as close to Jesus as any. And they had this pride with them. I mean, the other 10, we see in verse 24, they're jockeying for position. They wanted the places of honor beside Jesus' throne for themselves too. How dare James and John get to Jesus before us? You see the jealousy here? (laughs) It's evident. And it's not just the first time. We saw this last week. Remember that in Luke 22, verses 24 through 26, we see that this jealousy continues among the 12, even to the last night of Jesus' life as he has the final supper with them. Luke 22, verses 24 through 26 remind us that even then they were jockeying for position, wondering who was going to be first, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Even on the last night of Jesus' life before his trial and crucifixion, they were still bickering amongst themselves. This was a continual issue. I mean, look here at verse 25 through 26. Here's how Jesus responds to them. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servants, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus calls these twelve to him. Jesus, in verse 25, he's the leader of leaders here. I mean, he's been preparing these 12 men since Matthew chapter 10 over the kingdom work after Jesus returns to his throne in heaven. Remember in chapter 10, this is when Jesus sent out his disciples on a little missionary journey, a little preaching circuit. He prepares them even then. You're going to take over someday. And he's still doing it here in chapter 20. But here, Jesus teaches the profound truth that there's a stark difference between Gentile pride and genuine, humble Christian servanthood. Look here at verse 25. 
Let's read it again. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. He, he's comparing the actions of the Gentile lords and princes with the humility of the true servant leadership that, he's, that he expects in his kingdom. Verse 25, I think, can be compared with what Jesus said to his 12 about how the rulers of the Gentiles will mock and flog him when he arrives in Jerusalem. When you look over here at Matthew 20, verses 18 through 19, let's look at that. As Jesus is walking, he tells him, see... We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, verse 19, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. That I think that connection with the Gentiles here is not to be overlooked in verse uh, 25 when he says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He's continuing the lesson. I'm going to Jerusalem. You're coming with me. Here's what will happen. The lords of the Gentiles will mock me and flog me and crucify me. That's how the Gentiles, that's how their pride and their jealousy help give them power. But he says here in verse 25 to his 12, But Jesus, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. These 12 disciples were acting no different than the Gentile leaders of the Roman Empire and even the puppet masters in the Hebrew uh, hierarchy, how they will try, they will crucify Jesus and, and cause great suffering on Jesus for their own pride. Jesus is challenging and threatening their authority and their status, and they have to take care of Jesus to maintain their reputations. And he's looking at his 12, and he's reminding them here in verse 25, don't be like that. I'm going to Jerusalem, and this is what I will suffer at the hands of the Gentile rulers, but you are not like them. I mean, verse 26, Jesus now turns the traditional philosophy here of the day. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Verses 26 and 27, what Jesus is doing, he's turning on the head, the the common idea of the day, really in in Greek thinking that had infected the Roman uh, Empire and even the Jewish traditions of the day that the thinking was, if you were great, you had power. Matter of fact, the most honored people in the Greek, the Greco-Roman world were those with power. If you had power, you had the favor of the gods. If you did not have power, you must have been despised by the gods. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's flipping that pagan idea around. It shall not be so among you, my 12. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Don't act like the rulers of the Gentiles who lord their authority and their power over others. The word here in verse 26, the ESV and the King James have different translations, but the word is the same. The word in verse 26 in the ESV is servant. In the King James, it's minister, but it's actually diakonos, literally waiter of tables. 
the word we get for deacon. The word in verse 27 for slave in the ESV or servant in the King James is actually doulos. So you have two words here at play. You have servant and slave, minister or servant in the King James. But you have the diakonos, literally meaning a server. You have doulos, which literally means slave. And Jesus is using these two words here for a reason. What he means here in the word play is that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, those who will be the leaders of the kingdom, will be those who are humble and a slave as they serve the needs of others instead of serving the need of the self. I mean, his disciples were not humble here. Remember, they were indignant. They were full of prideful jealousy. They were not showing a servant's attitude of humility. Why is this important? I think it's because as Christ calls one to enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter into eternal life, one must be washed clean by Christ's blood. And if pride remains dominant, then there's no room for humility in the regenerate heart. If pride remains dominant, then the 12 apostles here will be no different than the Gentile leaders who mock and flog and crucify Jesus himself. So that's why Jesus is telling these other 10, as he calls all 12 together, you are indignant toward one another. You are jealous with one another. You're trying to gain power for, for yourselves. You're acting no different than those who are going to crucify me. What? I mean, this is important here. When we look here at verse 27 and 28, Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So now here, Jesus is showing them, I am the one who you follow. And here is what I, the Son of Man, am doing. I will serve. I am here to serve you. And the way I serve you is to give my life as a ransom for you. If you are jockeying for position in political power amongst the eternal kingdom of heaven's authority structure, you're not giving yourself up as a ransom for anyone. You're not imitating Christ. Instead, Jesus is pointing out you're acting like the the prideful Gentile rulers. You're not acting like a ruler in my kingdom. I mean, Jesus takes very seriously the manner by which those he chooses to work in his kingdom, these 12, he takes it very seriously how they they work in his kingdom, the manner by which they operate. I mean, Jesus' own sacrificial servanthood, he's showing here in verse 28, is, is the model that he expects for all of his people. I mean, just as Jesus sacrificed all as he is the perfect servant slave, he sacrificed himself for sinners, He sacrificed himself for those who didn't deserve it. He's saying that the greatest of disciples in the kingdom will be just like him. His own atonement is the firm foundation for greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he expects of his 12. That's what he expects of us. I mean, the key word here is ransom in verse 28. 
I mean, the servants of Christ who, who will sit with him in his eternal glory will be those who gave themselves up as a ransom for others who do not deserve it. And if you remember, Jesus promised these 12 that they would have thrones in heaven right beside him back in, in Matthew 19, 28. You remember that? And that is still in the back of the mind of these 12. They are taking that promise of their Savior that they will sit on thrones in his eternal glory and they will pass judgment upon Jerusalem and the nations. Now that will elevate a lot of pride in a man, won't it? I get to sit on the thrones beside Jesus and I get to tell you that you're wrong. That's what they're dealing with here. I mean, the key word here is ransom. And Jesus is expecting the greatest in his kingdom, the ones who God the Father himself will prepare thrones for, are the ones who will be so humble and so servant-like as a slave that they will give up their lives for others. And we know the history of the 12 apostles, all of them died a martyr's death. Even John the Revelator, even though he was in exile, you could argue that that is a martyr's death. Even though he wasn't necessarily crucified or burned at the stake, he was in exile until the last breath of his life. Every one of them had that end. They modeled their Savior in everything. But think about this. Jesus' whole life was a service to others. Jesus waited upon the needs of others like a server of tables waits on the needs of the diners at the table, the diakonos, the server. Our genuine hearts of subservience, if if they're in humble submission to Christ, will also be the hearts of subservience to a lost and dying world of Gentiles and sinners. That's what Jesus is reminding these 12. Just as Jesus' life of subservience atoned for God's wrath toward our sin. Our honest and genuine lives of subservience will be reflections and instruments of God's grace as reflections of Christ's humility and his servanthood. It's what Jesus is expecting here. To be subservient is to be a useful means to a glorious end. To be subservient is to be God's instrument in service to His glorious eternal purpose. That's what it means to be a servant slave in the kingdom of heaven. Dear Lord, use me as an instrument for Your eternal glory. And that's what He's calling these twelve to remember. Because God's kingdom purposes are much greater than our ambition and selfish pride. That's the lesson here. If pride is the great sin, as C.S. Lewis reminded us, then the elimination of that great sin would then eliminate all other sins, you would argue. We will then be more useful and present in God's glory and useful to His eternal purposes because the great sin of pride is the cause of all other sin. That's what we see here in jealousy. What was the root of the jealousy here? Pride. That's the issue. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes this seed of pride. 
Well, now we have come to the center of Christian morals. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. You see, what do we want to do? We want to deal with our sins that really, in God's eyes, are, I like C.S. Lewis's term, flea bites in comparison to the root of pride. Pride is the great sin because pride is the foundation of all other sin. If we focus on these little sins, and all sin is, is bad, don't get me wrong, but if we sin, if we focus only on, well, you know, I'm just jealous all the time, or I'm angry all the time, or I'm greedy all the time, what we're doing is we're missing the great sin that really needs to be dealt with, and that's the great sin of pride. I mean, if these 12 disciples were filled with jealousy, their minds were filled with pride first. I mean, if their minds were filled with pride, then their minds were not filled with God. That's the point. Because if pride is the root of all sin, and if pride dominates our thoughts and who we are, there's no room for God. If pride is first in our actions, if pride is first in our thinking, then really our state of mind is anti-God. I think that's what Jesus is trying to teach us here. Because when he says here, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's, that's pride. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. He's saying, don't take on the actions of the prideful Gentiles who think that power means favor. If you want favor in my kingdom, Jesus is telling them, then the favor that you will receive will be if you are a servant, a slave to others, just as I am a slave and a servant to all sinners, atoning for their sin. He expects his people to be the same. So how do we take this home? I mean, this narrative that is actually shown in both Matthew and Mark, remember Matthew chapter 20, and we see it again in Mark chapter 10. I mean, it's a clear reflection of of human vanity and pride all through it. I mean, it teaches us that prideful ambition is often intertwined in a right and godly pursuit that's the, that's the danger of it. I mean, both the sons of Zebedee and the other ten disciples, they had godly zeal to be leaders in the kingdom, to follow their Lord into the establishment of the eternal kingdom. They had passion in this. But in the midst of it was pride and ambition. Their hearts remained corrupted with this pride. I mean, it's not enough for a mind to be sincerely directed to Christ in the beginning as a new baby Christian. It must keep on always on the same path of humility and holiness. It's a constant journey. I mean, 
Very often depraved thoughts and feelings come over us in the middle of the Christian struggle and that often turns us off course. I mean, the wisdom of Solomon warns us against vanity and popularity. The, the root of this ambitious pride to be popular, to be seated first beside Jesus in his eternal glory. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the wisdom of Solomon tells us this in verses 13 through 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who moved about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Can you imagine being a king with that description? There was no end of all the people of whom he led and who adored him. Can you imagine what that does to a man? Here's how Ecclesiastes 4.16 concludes. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Prideful ambition, according to the wisdom of Solomon, is vanity and a striving after the wind. Why? Because what do you end up with if your life is directed by vanity and pride? In the very end of our lives, there's nothing left. Yet if you are a honorable king, according to the wisdom of Solomon, who looks after the benefit and the well-being of those in your care, at the end of your life, there will be no end to the praise of your humility and servant leadership. You see the difference here? So as Jesus is trying to, to, to continue to teach these 12 apostles uh, how to be leaders in his kingdom, he's got to get the pride and the vanity out of them. They, he's got to get their desire for popularity and fame out of them in order to be the true servant leaders that the church will need. I mean, just as this foolish king in Ecclesiastes 4 forgot the humility of his youth, he was once dependent upon others. The foolish king's pride was his downfall. I always like to say it's important to remember where we've come from. No matter how much success or growth that we have in our adult lives, it's always helpful to remember where we've come from. That'll humble you pretty quickly. The vanity of popularity here for this king is the root of the prideful ambition that is also expressed by the sons of Zebedee here in Matthew 20. And all of God's chosen people who forget that we too were insignificant once. Who were we before Christ redeemed us? Nobody. Depraved, arrogant, prideful, rebellious sinners. And now, even after Christ has redeemed us with his blood and he has called us to repentance and granted us forgiveness and new life and a new personhood in Christ, we are still, even now in this world, still struggling with the root of all of our sin, and that is pride. A vain thing. Because <laughs> if you're looking for popularity... And fame, like these 12 apostles were, as they were desiring and jockeying the choice thrones before Christ, 
Public opinion is meaningless in the kingdom of heaven. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us here too. Public opinion means nothing. The only opinion that matters is the favor of your Father in heaven. That's it. I mean, think about this. When we, when we think about the, the eternal judgment, that, that final day of the Lord that we're beginning to look at on Wednesday nights in the, in the prophecy of Joel, the day of the Lord is coming. That day of the Lord is that final day of eternal judgment for all. And when we look in Matthew 25, Jesus helps us see this, exactly what's going to happen. Matthew 25, I'm not going to read it all, but verses 31 uh, through 46 is the passage. But I'm going to look at verses 31 through 36. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then let's look in verse 37. You say, well, okay, that sounds great, Jesus. When did I do that? Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40. And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, who did you do it to? You did it to me. I think that's what he's trying to teach his 12 disciples in Matthew 20. Don't chase after ambition and popularity that the, that the prideful minds of men define as glorious. No. He's wanting us to not be like the leaders of the Gentiles, the lords of the Gentiles. Be humble servants in my kingdom as I model for you, as I, the Son of God, Sacrifice all that I am for you. Then you'll be great in my kingdom. But in order to be there, (laughs) pride has to be eliminated from us. That's difficult for us to do. Is anybody struggling with swallowing your pride from time to time? I say that to some folks who, when they come to the pastor and they complain and, and, and just tell me all of that, all the injustices that they are facing. They did this to me and they don't appreciate me and look at how they treat me and all this stuff. And I look at them and lovingly from time to time, I'll say, do we need to swallow our pride first? Is it all about me? You know, those people that when you, when they come around, you, you cringe because they're getting ready to just fill your ears full of themselves. 
That's all they can talk about is me, 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 me. I, 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 I. Look at what I do. Look at what I do. Look at what I'm doing. Don't you want, don't you want to hear about me? Look, it's all about me. You ever know those kind of folks? How many of us in this room are one of those folks? At times we're all that way, aren't we? And I think Jesus is reminding us here in Matthew 20, this interchange between the sons of Zebedee and the other 10 disciples. It's not about you. It's not about you. Jesus is saying it's all about me and my sacrifice for you. And if you want to be leaders in my kingdom, as I've called you to be leaders in my kingdom, to be the one to establish my church, this pride has to go. Folks, how many of us in this room are wrestling with that pride? Remember how C.S. Lewis described it. If we're wrestling with pride, the chances are we don't recognize it in ourselves. That's a clear sign that we're dealing with pride. Or that we're not dealing with pride because it's in us and we don't see it in us. That's the first sign that we've got pride. Lord, I, I, I just pray that, I mean, all of us are dealing with this. Let's just remember all the other sins that we're wrestling with, anger, uh, jealousy, whatever the sin is, it's all rooted in pride. And if the Lord can get that out of us, and He will, those He loves, those He calls, those He forgives, He will purge that from us in whatever manner is necessary. Gently or not so gently as He determines and as our pride determines. Amen. Are we to be great in the kingdom of heaven or not? I think the first step is let's not desire greatness at all. Let's desire humility. And the Lord will determine who is great. Amen. Let's ask Him for that help. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank You for this Word. Dear God, I do pray that all of us need this. We need this reminder that Your Son is teaching His twelve. Do not be like the Gentile leaders who see power as the greatest goal. Lord, I do pray that You would humble us all. When we are worried about our feelings and our justice, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that your son suffered so much more than we are. And I pray, God, that you would go with us in this and that you'd continue to teach us and continue to purge us of this great sin that's the foundation of all others. Lord, we need your help in this. And so we come to you humbly and we plead with you, dear Lord, forgive us, but purge the pride from us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.